the start, the struggles, the pain and joy. This is how you started lah podcast. Hey ladies and gentlemen, uh, today we've got our first international guest. He's a stand-up comedian coming all the way from US, New York to be specific. Let's welcome Rob Ryan. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, no worries, Rob. I actually wanted to get uh, this actor called Adam Scott. And then who's the closest uh, stand-up <laughs> comedian who looks like him? Uh, I get Adam Scott a lot. I really do. And I also get but it, <laughs> I also get quite a bit Benedict Cumberbatch. That's my other uh that's the other guy yeah. that I get quite a bit. But here's the thing. Uh and this is this has been true throughout. The the Adam Scott people don't see the Benedict Cumberbatch thing, and the Benedict Cumberbatch people don't see the Adam Scott thing. It's very wild. Yeah. I see both. You live in a racist world. Huh? <laughs> I I definitely see both. I think I got the facial structure and my jawline uh, definitely with the Adam thing. But I think that um, the top half of my face, a little bit more on the eyes, not as beady, but uh, gives me more of the Benedict thing. I did cosplay as uh, Doctor Strange uh, for Halloween last year, and I went to Comic Con as Doctor Strange, and um, I looked, I looked yeah, good. Yeah, I saw that. I looked good. So, uh, yeah. By the way, Doctor Strange is my favorite favorite Marvel character. So, oh, very cool. I love him. He's great. Yeah, yeah. I liked him because uh, if you look at all the Marvel movies, it's always about some guy going into a lab, and then something goes wrong, and then he gets power. Whereas Doctor Strange is like, he is a doctor. He's rich, and then he loses everything. Mm. And then he goes to Kathmandu right. to find his power. So it's something <laughs> different there. So I was like, damn, this guy is. That's true. Yeah. He kind of, he kind of, uh, he went the Batman route uh, of, of, <laughs> of the Dark Knight trilogy where it's just like, he just went off the grid, you know, the way Batman did. And then he just trained with these, um, I guess, I guess Batman trained with these ninja assassins, but Dr. Strange went ahead and trained with these monks and yeah. came out the other end with his powers. So uh, yeah, I think that's great. I like I like the journey a lot more too. I like uh, and I'm cur- I'm can't wait to see the uh, what's second the, one. Yeah, yeah, the, and the multiverse thing, whatever it's called. I forget what it's called, but yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, I I heard uh, I heard I think Raimi will be directing it, the Spider Man guy. Oh, Sam, Sam Spider Man One Two Three. Yeah, yeah. I was a background actor in in a couple scenes in Spider Man Three. So uh, ah. I, I did get to see Sam Raimi at work. I got to uh, see Tobey Maguire and and his his giant like six foot four uh, a Spider-Man double. <laughs> it was really fun. We shot all that in downtown Manhattan. Ah, interesting. So you went from that to like telling jokes on stage. <laughs> well done, <laughs> <Yeah>. Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's yeah. funny when you do when you do background work because you get to be a part of some really cool things, but you yourself are not interesting or doing anything cool. Um, but it's still fun. I remember I did a lot of that when I was younger because uh, it's just fun to be on set. It's just cool, and I had nothing else going on. Uh, mm. and that, that was really it. I would actually be happy to do that stuff again. I think it's, it's, it's fun. You can meet some, uh, some crazy people. There's definitely some crazy background actors, but there's fun people too, for sure. Uh, I still remember for Spider-Man three back in 2007, I got the premiere tickets. Ooh. One of the very few movies where I watched, uh, watched the premiere. So I basically answered a question. Yeah. I think, uh, that 
because Spider-Man's by Sony, right? And Sony yeah. had a exhibition. So I answered a couple of questions and they gave me, hey, Gajan, you just won yourself a few free tickets. And then I had to answer more questions because I realized I have a family there at that time and oh, they wow. had to watch the movie on the spot. So <laughs> it'd be really awkward. Hi, bye, ma, bye, pa. I'll be watching the movie by myself. But yeah, that was one of the few movies that I watched uh, during the premiere. Wow. Yeah, okay. I think I need to watch back. Do you, do you remember which scene were you in? You know what? There is about two or three frames that you can definitely see me. And this is when the Sandman attacks uh, and Mary Jane and James Franco are just looking up and they're like, oh, and they're just noticing. They're all looking up at the sky that, that the Sandman guy is coming. And then I believe that they just kind of separate for like, two or three frames and I'm in the crowd behind it and you can see my long six foot three lanky mm. uh, neck pop out and you see my face for a couple seconds and that was yeah. really it. <laughs> so that's it. That was it. But it was, it was cool to, uh, to spend a couple days down downtown and, and mm. be a part of that shoot. I think they wanted to get Adam Scott and they say, why not we get a double <laughs> for the background actor? So that's like a, that's like a double blow on you, right? I'm a background actor who's a double <laughs> for Adam Scott. <laughs> Who yeah. just started his career at that time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> Adam Scott, I got to know him through parks and recreation. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, I knew him before that. I, I just had an argument with a friend of mine about how I didn't... Uh, I like Adam Scott, but I didn't like Ben Wyatt's character. I didn't enjoy that character. And I didn't enjoy uh, his relationship with Leslie Nope. That was my That was my thing. So come at me, bro, if you disagree. But that was my thought. <laughs> no parks and rec uh i mean i enjoyed it but the thing is I, i'm still a big fan of the office the u.s uh, yeah. one mm-hmm. yeah so well you know i mean it, i'm already a parks uh, but uh for me i the first office is still like on the top of my list yeah right i was actually discussing this with the same friend about how you know the office coming from the british office had this really you know uh not not dark, but just a dry sense of humor. And there was nothing really likable, certainly not lovable about Michael Scott. And then they kind of had to soften him up for American audiences in a way. And Steve Carell had to be far more likable for this show to kind of work. And so season two, they definitely retooled him a lot and they made him have traits where he's more of a lovable loser now instead of just this insufferable boss. And then they just rode with that. So it became like, by after five seasons or so or whatever it was, eventually every episode was a feel-good episode. Every episode had this just like message of like friendship. We're all, you know, we're colleagues, but we we're friends too. <laughs> it just became a little mm. soft. And I remember that when Parks and Rec started, uh, they kind of picked up this torch where it looked like um, the office had had let off. It was like Parks and Rec sort of picked up this torch of like, okay, if we're gonna do a show you know, definitely ensemble piece because The Office was not as ensemble when it started either. It was really just Michael. Dwight was a bit of a side character. Then you got the little Jim and Pam thing going on. And that was it. Everybody else is just, you know, maybe they'll get a line or two. And then it became this huge, the whole office has lines and plot threads and all this crap. So when Parks and Rec started, they were just like, let's just start with that. We have Leslie Nope. She is the boss now. And she's also kind of bumbling at first in the first season uh, before she becomes anal retentive and then great at everything, which kind of happened more in like the second season. Uh, And 
but it was like ensemble from the jump. And I just kind of recognized that of like, oh, they kind of picked up on what they liked. And then they, they took that and moved it forward in this like faux, faux documentary type thing as well. Uh, the office had a semblance of trying to make it seem like it was a documentary, but Parks and Rec were just like, we'll keep the style, but we're not even going to pretend <laughs> like we're not going to justify why the cameramen are here, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're not mm. going to pretend like, you know, we're still putting our mic packs on and stuff like that. The office tried to keep that, even though it was ridiculous after a while. You're like, what? <laughs> you got a, you got a film crew to go with you here as well. Um, mm. But they just were like, eh, we'll film it like it's documentary style, but we're not going to keep the conceit that it is actually a documentary. So little things like that. It's interesting to see how television shows sort of borrow from each other and evolve, and one steals from another, steals from another. It's really kind of interesting. Mm. To me, at least. I don't know. Nice one there, Rob. Like uh, for me, so I started watching Office actually quite late, like back in 2011. Okay. 2010, yeah. Mm. And after that, I was like, damn, I, I wish I watched this earlier. Because like, the problem with a lot of, uh, with a lot of uh, like TV shows, they they are not stand-up funny, you know. I don't know why. Like, The, the Office, you know that there are a few stand-up comedians who are like, involved like in uh, the writing. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, for Ricky. sure. Oh, well, Ricky is absolutely Ricky uh, Gervais. But then yeah. I'm talking for the American um, uh, BJ Novak. That was what I was trying to think of. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then his his character wind up becoming a more bigger part, too, while, while he was writing mm. for that show. <clears throat> uh, yeah, you're right that it's not, um, you know, they're not as stand up heavy as they as they used to be. But. I don't know. I don't know to what end, you know, if that's a good thing or a bad thing or not. It's great that they have as many improv um, comedians and then also just, you know, actors by trade on these shows as well. Because, <clears throat> you know, the idea of just looking at a stand-up comedian and saying, hey, you're funny, your story works, you know, what do you got? And then they kind of base some show around their, that person's life. It's hard. Like, it's, just, it's a hard sell. Um, mm, mm. and they used to do it a lot with the three, uh, camera sitcoms. And of course, to obvious great success for Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld. And, mm. um, but when you kind of look at that format more recently, even John Mulaney, uh, when he tried to launch that, his, his three camera sitcom television show, I remember even thinking at the time, I was like, I think this is done. Like, we, we can't still be doing three camera sitcoms. Like, that doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> maybe it does, but it's it's tired enough where uh, Tim Allen was able to do it more with the um, with his show, Last Man Standing, mm. where it's like, okay, this is still a live audience, three camera television setup, but... Uh, it's a throwback, you know, and Tim Allen's old now and, and you kind of can watch him. It's like the audience has grown older. So when they were in their 20s and 30s, they were watching um, Seinfeld and Everybody Loves Raymond and whatever. But now they're in their, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s and they still might like that. But a younger audience, mm. they want a single camera television show. They don't want the laugh track. You know, they want mm. more jokes per minute. And they want them to be subtler and they want, you know, a different type of humor. 
some of that humor mm. is like awkward, like, uh-oh, you know, a little office, like, you know, mugged to the camera. Oh, boy, what did he just say? And mm -hmm. some of it is this 30 Rock style, mile a minute, joke, 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 um, maybe digging into or maybe sort of eroding characters, character development and plot. But as long as you get a bunch of jokes in there, something like that. So these two kinds of jokes, these two kinds of shows wind up you know, emerging. Uh, Arrested Development, same deal. You're like, this is just a whole other thing. We can really take these ideas and just push them as far as we can push them because we have a single camera and we have really talented actors and improvisers. You know, let's let's see how far this goes. Uh, shows like Community as well, uh, Dan Harmon's uh, creation. Mm. And he eventually makes Rick and Morty, which uh, becomes like, Cartoons are almost the epitome of what these shows, I think, ultimately want to be. Certainly a show that has the format <clears throat> of like 30 Rock, where mm. it's like, well, you've made these caricatures, they're barely believable, and you're putting them in these fantastical situations, and the jokes are just hitting you one after another after another. At some point, you're like, could we just animate this? <laughs> like, this is so, this has become so absurd and so silly. Um, and it's so, again, it's interesting to kind of follow the, uh, the trajectory of television shows of what shows clearly seem to influence others. I didn't watch Arrested Development when it was on at the time that it was on. And I sort of missed that train. So when I mm. went back to watch it, uh, comedy is very weird. I don't know, maybe if you agree with me on this, but comedy is very weird to watch after some time has passed because, yeah. You know, they're commenting on, you know, not only directly commenting on what's going on right now, if they're making any specific references, but then also just in general, comedy usually, in my opinion, answers a question that the world or society didn't even know it was necessarily asking. But a good mm. comedian and good comedy scratches that itch um, or answers that question. And so when you watch comedy out of context or maybe five years removed or more, uh, no one's asking that question anymore. So this show is, is, is scratching the wrong itch or it's answering the wrong question. You're just like, I don't get, why is this funny? And you'd need like an, an historian to say, oh, well, this was funny back then because at the time this thing was happening and so thus blah, 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 or whatever. Right, right. Um, a specific reference would be like in Seinfeld when Jackie Childs was uh, uh, trying to defend Kramer um, you know, he, he made like an OJ Simpson reference, but it was, it was, you know, a little oblique, uh, where mm. he was, uh, the girl was putting a bra on, but then he made him tr her try the bra on in court, but she couldn't get fit it over the sweater that she was wearing. And she said, it doesn't mm. fit. It's not my bra. And then it kind of ruined the case, but that was obviously making fun of OJ Simpson putting on the glove over the latex glove that he had to wear. And he couldn't fit it on in court. And that was a big, a big, you know, mistake for the prosecution. I'm not saying that OJ Simpson obviously stands the test of time in a lot of ways, but the joke was subtle enough um, that, yeah, you'd miss it if you, if you moved on. So that's a specific mm. reference, but not only mm. are there specific references that you miss, but there's just a general vibe about, about what the life was like. Um, 
that you'll just miss when it comes to so much comedy. And I think that honestly, the the subtler and the more refined, fine-tuned comedy that there is, the more ephemeral of a feature that it ultimately is, the more it withers uh, pretty quickly because you're like, well, I'm trying to I'm trying to do a very interesting thing. If I were to come up with a joke today, right now, um, there would be obviously the pandemic, obviously the uh, protests would at the very, very least inform what it is that I'm going to come up with or what it is that I'm going to say. Whether I'm speaking of it directly or even indirectly, it's going mm. to inform what I say. Um, yep. It would be sort of tasteless to make some kind of irreverent um, racial joke right now as an example. Because right, of course, the world yeah. doesn't really need a reverence at this point, at this moment. And you're just almost like, well, who's the joke for exactly? So sometimes I see comedy coming in uh, more broad stroke waves. Uh, and I have had predicted, uh, and I could be wrong now, <laughs> I'm not really sure, but I had predicted that um, when I started seeing the advent of c comedy that was airing on the side of very serious, almost like, hey, unless you have some, you know, with uh, Hannah Gadsby probably being yeah. uh, front and center uh, when it came to that type of discussion, that, yeah, if you don't have a compelling perspective story, something that is unique that we haven't heard before from, you know, someone like me, a straight white male per se, then, you know, why are we listening to you? We don't need random jokes about random things. We want to hear a perspective uh, from a person or, or an experience. And I think that that idea can last for a time. And then I think that there would uh, be or would have been um, a wave of the opposite of that. Then at some point, people are going to not tired, but, but kind of be, yeah, maybe tired, just be exhausted from their, even their um, refuge from the world at large. You go to a comedy show and then it's more heavy, heavy stuff. So you're not getting mm. this opportunity to just turn your brain off and laugh at absolute nonsense. So I was thinking that nonsensical, silly, silly humor was going to be the next wave. Um, it's kind of hard to predict those types of things and everything's more fragmented than, than it ha ever has been where everyone has their mm. niche and you can find stuff. But I think straight up, if you could be straight up silly and really good at it, uh, I think that there's, there is something that you'd be offering the world in the near future that people would have a real uh, thirst for, real taste for. Yeah. Um, I hope what you say is true, man. <laughs> like uh, because like you brought Hannah Gatsby, I'll be honest with you, I haven't watched her, even though she's on my list. Mm -hmm. But I've been hearing like uh, globally, like in all the festivals, right? Like comics nowadays, they are like, not say doing less jokes. That may may be very harsh, but it's a must to do like a maybe like a seventy percent jokes and maybe like thirty percent advice or like a yeah. like a message, right? And uh, some of the comics who have watched uh, one hour specials like that. 
they'll be like, uh, yeah, I get your message, but again, I'm here for a comedy show. And right. uh, they're, it's just not one comic, but they're starting to see this new wave of style who are like people who are doing this, you know, like giving advice. So now they have brought that up. I hope it goes your way, man. Like uh, <laughs> to me, I just want to hear jokes. I mean, I appreciate the advice. I don't mind one or two, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, subtle advices, but yeah, if it also becomes a TEDx talk. Right, right. And and I have no uh I have no dog in the fight, you know. I enjoy lots of different forms of entertainment and I was not um of the ilk who thought that they were going to determine what it was that comedy was and what it was that comedy was not. And hmm. um you can say, you know, you can enjoy Hannah's show or not. Uh, but then they just go ahead and say what it what, that it's not comedy. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't even think I prefer to make the distinction. I'm not sure how much I actually care to make the distinction because mm. I think that there's enough. Um, when John Leguizamo was more popular doing his one man shows, um, you know, they were funny, but they were also wildly entertaining and they had um, poignant moments as well, and that's cool. But he you know, kind of build it and build himself as like a one-man show. So it kind of works. Or I see Mike Birbiglia doing it really well where he's got, obviously this these are stand-up structured jokes, but he's performing in a theater and he's doing, uh, and he's telling a story. And so this is a one-man show as well. Um, maybe just because Hannah just happened to be holding a microphone, you know, or at a microphone stand, or maybe it was because it was on mm. Netflix as a comedy special. I mean, did it just throw that many people? I mean, she's in a, mm. she's in a stadium or whatever she's in. She's in a huge, uh, uh place performing. She's obviously has a, a fan base and she's done mm. really well with this show that she's created. So fuck, who cares what it's called? Um, mm. let's, let's watch it and see what the point is. Now, if you haven't seen it yet, it is message heavy for sure. Um, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I actually liked the message part more than the comedy part because her no. jokes weren't for me a hundred percent. I said, ah, oh, these jokes are fine. But then her story elements, the stuff that told me about who she is and what she thinks, I said, oh, this is very interesting. And I was, I was far more interested in what she thought and felt and had to say than, um, than her attempts at making me laugh and only laugh. So I said, oh yeah. I said, well, the jokes are okay, but I really liked when she talked about, you know, the shit that she's went through. So, Mm. you know, you're right. If you're going to a comedy show and you pay tickets for a comedy show, chances are you're probably going to want to see comedy and little else. And you're certainly not going to want to be told, you know, how to live your life or something. But uh, uh, I think that it's good when the person uh, if it's a personal story and you're not extrapolating too, too much um, and maybe just be upfront with your audience. You know, I'm actually going through mm-hmm. this right now. Uh, I have been working on um, my own performance piece that has been not strictly stand up, And this came about after I finished my uh, album, which is mm. on iTunes, by the way, you check it out. It's Rob Ryan, mm. non-alcoholic. I, uh-huh was proud of the stand-up album that I, I had come up with and it was my first album. So pr- probably like most comics, the first album was just really an amalgamation of, of the, the, the good jokes that I'd come up with over the past, you know, 10 years or so. Um, maybe you got a lucky one in early and that one stuck with you through, through eight years. And then you kind of built up and now you got an hour's worth of stuff and you just put it out. Once I was done with that though, 
I felt like it was weird to just uh, truncate, stop, put the stuff out, and then you know start all over again, press record, and go, okay, well, let's do the next thing. And then just start that process again. I don't know why, but something about that in my mind just made me go, huh, you know, that seems weird. And so what I did instead was I started actively working towards a different type of, um, of performance piece uh, where mm. I myself was thinking, I have, um, I have my own life experiences that I wouldn't mind uh, sharing and I wouldn't mind you know, going through the trouble of trying to make funny. Because uh, a lot of it is, is is pretty fucked up and sad. So I was mm. like, well, if I can do this, this would be a nice challenge. And I was at a place in my life where I thought I could potentially do it. And I knew I was good enough as a writer to to work on it. And um, I'm still um, trying to fumble through it. I was planning on taking this to um, Edinburgh this year. Um, ah. but those plans all got kind of changed. Uh, so I've been yeah. kind of constructing this, uh, this one man show of, for, of myself. Um, mm. and, but I have been, I've been hammering away at the funny parts on stage. So I wanted, cause it's funny that, you know, you talked about your personal feelings on it. I, I didn't want the fact that it was a one man show to give me the permission to just not be funny for long stretches of time. So mm. the, the promise I made myself was that I should be able to perform um, the majority of this material on New York City stand-up comedy you know, club stages, and I should be able to make it work. And if I can't, then it's just not good enough. It's not you know, funny enough to be in my, in my, in my show. And it's okay if I get serious and our folks, it's okay if I get dark, um, but I should be able to make them laugh and it, I shouldn't be resting on the fact that it's like, Hey, you know, it's a, it's a one man show. So it's going to get a little, uh, not funny at times or whatever. Like I didn't, I didn't want that. So mm, it's been, yeah. it's been a very interesting, I was just able to, um, I headlined, um, I, I did a feature set live, uh, back in February or January and I was doing um, feature sets, about 25, 30 minutes uh, in, in the mm. States. And I worked on, I, I made it a commitment that I was going, going to do uh, this one-man show stuff. And mm. it's all about my life. It's about my mother, uh, who is an alcoholic, and she ultimately uh, passed away. And then my um, brother suffered from significant depression, and he uh, wound up uh, committing suicide, actually. So there was a lot of, oh. and then getting to my own, um, struggles with that. So really heavy, uh, content, but I was determined to somehow make this, uh, palatable to an audience. So mm. I just started saying jokes, you know, some of it I had kind of written already cause I had some jokes about my mom and alcoholism, but I just kept on pushing it and pushing it. And then I started adding story elements to it. And I started describing, you know, the relationship between me and my mom. And then and then my family at, at large. And then it's it, it was getting harder and harder because the more that I told, the more the audience is like, oh my God, <laughs> this is, I don't want to hear this. <laughs> uh, so I, I had to really like pull out a lot of tricks from my bag to keep them entertained while also feeding them a steady diet of um, some pretty uh, tough, rough information. But I was able to get through a feature set uh, beginning of this year um, 
and uh, I was actually featuring for Seton Smith over. I was in um, the Poconos, and I mentioned mm. Seton Smith that way because I had just mentioned um, Mulaney's show earlier, and Seton was a cast member on that show. So mm. <laughs> I go to this show in the Poconos. I do my thirty minutes, which can very well kill a crowd, like like not kill in a good way. Um, just make them sad if not done well. <laughs> <laughs> so I go and I do my stuff and luckily it was good enough, but uh, you know, Seton gets up there and the, the host, he had a lot of self-deprecating humor. So Seton gets up there and he goes, Hey, give it up for the saddest white guys I've ever met in my life. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and he takes <laughs> of us, nice. But it was so great. It was so nice that I was able to actually for a feature set, you know, cover to cover. I didn't, I didn't apologize. I didn't go, Hey, you know, I'm going to tell a story. Hope that's okay. I just did my material yeah. and it worked. And I was really excited about that. And then in February mm -hmm. I had, um, um, I was headlining out in Denver, Colorado, and I was able to stretch my headlining set to fit this format more. And I was ah. talking to people after the show and honestly, the, the feedback from people, um, at least for right now, is that they enjoy that you know that's that is what they like that mm. um not so much maybe that there's some message that they have to like live by now but more that it's it's nice to know you it's nice to get to know you i like that i feel like i've learned something about this person and that it felt more real and it felt you know honest blah blah you know, these kind of buzzwords and i'm not I'm not unaware of this. That's that's part of the reason. That was part of the calculus of me mm. thinking, oh, this is probably the right move because I'm I'm ready to do it. I'm interested in doing it, and I think the world is as well. Um, mm. As I predicted, I do think that a an irreverent silly wave will also come <laughs> at some point. But people mm. are really into it. They really want to know what's going on. They want to know more about you specifically. And, you know, yeah. it would be great if you can make it funny as well. Yeah. Okay. Speaking about you, I mean, like you started in New York, right? Back in 2007, your stand-up. Yeah. Um, I graduated at Stony Brook University. I only stayed there for about three years. Um, I graduated valedictorian at my university. Uh, but I was kind of eager to start a life of performing. And I didn't want to get... <laughs> too stuck. Uh, I was a bit of an overachiever, so I didn't want to get stuck thinking that I was going to like get a normal job or something. So I just jumped right into <laughs> it. I was auditioning for. I was still. I was still acting, theater acting for for a time. So I auditioned for a show. I wound up booking this uh, theater tour for about four months. I did that. Oh. Uh, I met uh, some some cool people. A friend of mine from the tour was living in New York, so I wound up living with that person. Um, in this apartment for a while. And that's when I moved to New York. It was just, it was straight from the tour. I moved pretty much straight to New York City. Uh, there I was doing stand up. I was auditioning for plays, TV, movies, whatever, whoever would have me. Um, mm. Doing background work for Spider Man 3, all that kind of stuff. And uh, then I just kind of had to make, make a decision because I recognized that even if I booked some regional theater gig somewhere, I'd be taken out of New York for months at a time. And mm. I said, I don't think I can, I don't think I want that, you know? So I said, I should just focus on the stand up. I think that's the best way to go. You know, I felt stand up for me was 
it's something I could always do. I didn't have to wait around for the right role uh, yeah. or the right Correct. play. I just was like, hey, it's your instrument. If you can get better at it, mm. then go. I also and felt- you know what's the best part? You control your own content. You don't have to go yeah. through anyone else. Yeah, 100%. You know, you can, you know, there's, there are some rules of making the audience laugh, but basically if you can make them laugh, you're allowed to say uh, and do anything you want. So, so mm. that's been a nice, a nice thing. Um, and maybe you get a little screwed over on like what the industry is looking for time and time, you know, now and then, mm. but if you, um, but now over the last five years, I mean, that matters less and less now more than ever too, because you can find your own audience. Um, you can start a podcast and uh, chat with people internationally and put it out to the specific audience that is going to want to hear your stuff, build them that mm. way. So there's, yeah. there's so much that you can do. But I feel bad for my actor friends because they don't really, they don't have that luxury at all. And um, a lot of my f actor friends are also trying desperately to just write, to do what I do naturally, which is they're trying to learn how to write now. They're trying to learn how to create their own work. They're trying to learn how to make a, um, a web series, a sitcom, or whatever, some mm. kind of vehicle for them. Mm. And, it's, and it's so unnatural for them because that's not the world they were steeped in for so long. Right. They were just steeped in for go online, uh, read backstage, look for a part that might be good for you, learn the line, say it. And now they're living in a world where they go, oh shit, I have to write the show that I think I'd be good for. And that's you know the better way. That's the shot that I have because then I can get the on-camera experience. Even if this thing doesn't blow up, I've created my own reel. I have given casting directors a sense of the type of characters that I can play. But now you're talking, here you are an actor and you, you're trying to learn how to produce, to write, to direct, and they're not all up for the task. Comedians, you know, suffer the same fate sometimes when they're doing stand-up, they get really good at stand-up, but then when they start getting noticed by industry, industry is curious if they can write for television or if they can act. And it's a little confusing for them too, but I think standups are are used to that game. I think they're familiar with that premise mm. by now. They've heard it enough times, um, right? And I think Mitch Hedberg was the one who kind of famously uh, joked about that, where it was like, "Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah," I forget what he said exactly, but it was more or less, yeah, like this. He got really good at this job, and they're like, "Great, why don't you do this other job?" type of thing. And I forget how he worded it. <laughs> Um, yeah oh my goodness now just now the fact that you've said it like that guy's a legend uh. yeah oh, I remember yeah. you said like hey you're a stand-up comedian can you write yeah that's like a, that's like asking a chef hey you're a chef can you farm <laughs> <laughs> right obviously so, my de my delivery butchered it but yeah he did it in a way <laughs> right right now i gotta watch him man thanks to you <laughs> oh good i'm glad yeah uh but 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 you know mitch uh, he just laid it all out there. And if you're paying attention as a comic, you're like, okay, cool. So we understood this fact before the actors kind of picked up on it and before production mm. values got cheaper and cheaper and before you could actually make a halfway decent web series, you know, just from, from your home. Yeah. So they're all kind of coming to that reckoning the same way we did, but we did it like 10 years ago. We're like, we got to make our own shit. I mean, we got to, we got to figure out right. something. Um, so 
uh, that's what I, I wound up choosing stand up because of that. And right. I was happy that I did because I did feel like I had more creative control. I mean, I just, I was, was a wealth of silly, dumb, random ideas that I couldn't possibly wait around in to, in order to get them out. Um, mm. Even, even doing sketch or improv comedy, I don't feel like was enough to churn out the type of like thoughts and creativity that I had because I was writing sketch comedy as well, but it was so goddamn hard to get those ideas up and out. Um, when I talk to like college mm. kids now, um, my biggest advice to them is to do everything humanly possible um, on campus with your friends with help from staff and faculty. Because I mm. remember in college, I was, wasn't, I was a geology major, but I was heavily involved in the theater department. And they had resources. They had great resources. They had stages that were not always in use. You, all you had to do to reserve it was just ask, you know, first come, first serve type of thing. And you could literally reserve like a theater space for a night or a weekend, you know, or a Tuesday, Wednesday or something like that. Mm. And you could put up whatever the hell you wanted. You could write an original piece. You could cast uh, your friends or people from the department. You could ask for help for costuming. You could get people, like, you could borrow the lighting equipment. Like, just oh. really cool stuff. And we did not have, yeah, like, an amazing theater department. We, You know, we were ragtag mm. and we were fine. But the idea, I mean, thinking now, living in New York fucking city, the idea of having access to a performance space without shelling out just huge exorbitant amounts of money. Um, and yeah. then having the resources to have like, not only would you get it the day of, but you'd be able to make, get someone who's interested in doing a light plot who will do that for you and then hang the lights with you for you. And someone else who's interested in, you know, helping uh, costume your show just because they're learning. And obviously no one's getting paid. Like we're all just, in this to learn it's so yeah. valuable and it sucks because we're all kind of trying to do the same thing get better learn but nobody no one wants to work for free or cheap um most people can't afford to i guess as well uh but mm. it sucks it sucks there's a lot of like cool uh i like relationships that i had made and built and i always wanted it to be a barter system where i was like man if you're making something i'll fucking be there but if I'm making something, mm. you know, you got to help me out with whatever expertise you have. And mm, mm. usually sooner rather than later, they would, in my opinion, rather prematurely be like, yeah, but I kind of got to get paid for this kind of work now. And you're just like, yeah, maybe. Um, you're not like a film director. Uh, you're not like a professional <laughs> videographer just yet. Um, mm. So maybe you can just continue to work with your friends until you do get that kind of stuff. I think stand-ups get beaten that into them too. I mean, they're working for free just years and years and years into their quote unquote career that mm. they're just used to the fact they're like, I got to get good, man. I got to get so fucking good that not that I demand money, but that people are just throwing the money at me. Like that's, that's how good I have to be. But I don't know. Mm. I think I just came across um, one too many people who were of the mind set of like well i gotta get good enough until i decide that i should be paid for what i do 
I'm not saying that's a bad mentality. I'm just saying that it stinks when you don't get to create as much art because the guys that you were shooting funny sketches with or whatever just kind of got beaten down by the world or just got, you know, ran out of hours in the day or ran out of money uh, in their bank account Mm. where they just, you just can't be as fun, free flowing and creative as, as you once were. Um, That's why I really like uh, uh, TikTok and what TikTok has, has kind of done for people. It's like, it's kind of fun (laughs) watching people be creative and silly. Yeah. 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 Really nice. Actually interesting. You brought up about TikTok. Yeah. So let, let me share with you something. I think this is a very good insight. Okay. You know, the 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 country manager for TikTok Malaysia yeah, okay. actually lives in the same condominium as me. Oh, so really? last year, yeah. So last year he came up to me and this is what he said. He said TikTok is very new in Malaysia. And he said that uh, he wants to uh, invite all the Malaysian stand-up comedians to actually be part of TikTok. And oh. he said uh, he wants, uh, he thought of actually uploading a really short, short stand-up bits. I mean, it's 15 seconds, 30 seconds. So yeah. it's basically like one-liners. Uh-huh. And at that time, I wasn't on board because I looked oh. at TikTok and to me, I I've, I've found I found it very slapstick and to right. me, it was like very silly at that time last year, like beginning of last year. Yep. But I think it's because he got me at a wrong frequency. He was going in the stand-up way. But now that if I put stand-up aside mm-hmm. and I just look like, if I just look at TikTok as what it is, right. Damn, I find it damn entertaining, man. Yes, it is not smart or what, but it's a different <laughs> funny. It's a different type. Uh, to me, sometimes I don't want to think too much. You know, like when you're right. dead tired, I don't want to watch a one-hour special. Like sometimes mm-hmm. I just want to go through short videos on TikTok and and just entertain myself. And uh, yeah, now I'm on TikTok as well. And a lot of a lot of uh, celebrities are on TikTok. Uh, stand-up comedians like Kevin Hart and all that are also all on TikTok. So yeah, it's amazing that you brought that up. Like, I, do you come up with that TikTok? material often you know it's interesting because i i struggled the way you did i looked at the format and i was like trying to figure out well what's the format supposed to be and i i I just i couldn't figure out what i would do i I really struggled i was like well am i gonna sing a song am i gonna dance the way these people are dancing i'm like what the fuck (laughs) am i supposed to actually do uh and it's been a struggle for me shedding like this identity or whatever I, I, i've been trying to look at tiktok now as i went to college like i was somebody in high school and now i'm going to a new school i have a new identity i can be whoever i want to be and mm. it's totally okay if i you know tweet snarky things on twitter and if i post um you know uh, clever Instagram videos or something, but you, if you want to just be a complete, you know, put a, put a wig on and be a jackass for 30 seconds, like hell man, you mm. can do that on TikTok. And the people who really just have the most fun and commit to that, they do really well and they should Yeah, like speaking, it's kind of hearkening back to our silliness conversation where it's like this, that is a, a place where it doesn't seem too, too full of itself just yet. And you can probably still just come in, be good-natured, and just want to create funny, silly content, and and there's a place for it. And what's cool about yeah. it is that when you make your TikTok, you, you're allowed to share it to your Instagram feed, right? So yeah. I'll make a video. <laughs> I'll make a video that I would have felt embarrassed to make on Instagram, but I'll make it on TikTok, but then I'll share it 
on Instagram and it'll have like the little yeah. TikTok, um, <laughs> you know, whatever it's called, the the little like watermark or the tip TikTok yeah. little logo on the bottom. And that logo is like armor for me. That logo says, no, 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 <laughs> this is okay. I can be a jackass because this is from TikTok. I swear to God, that that's the feeling that I get from it. Um, but if I just posted a video like that just to Instagram, I'd be like, oh, that's a little, that's a little crazy, a little off brand, don't you think? So I'm trying not to think like that. It's totally fucking wrong. And anything yeah. that you can do to be funny, use that entire instrument. I think I remember from Steve yeah. Martin's uh, book where he said, uh, I forget who, who gave him this advice, but somebody had said to him early on, he says, uh, you know, you'll use everything you know, I think he said, something along those lines. Basically mm. being like, if you're going to be in the limelight trying to be entertaining and funny, every little skill, every little thing that you've ever been able to do or a little trick you will put out there to to make work. And he said, and it's true, I've played the banjo i've done uh you know every i've done magic every little skill that i've learned i have at some point or another put out in a movie or tv show some kind of project because mm. you just you gotta give them everything you have there's you know you yeah. if you're gonna be in in the that business for as long as he has been yeah so, right. you remember dr stranger in uh, the avengers when multiple hands like appear Yes. That's you, man. Like banjo, <laughs> straight. <laughs> Two hands is insufficient, bro. You need everything, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put that. Exactly. Okay. I've got one thing to ask you. So you have been doing like for 13 years now. And I believe uh, was last year your first time uh, performing in Malaysia. Oh, yes. Absolutely. It was. Um, and uh, what, what was your impression of uh, the Malaysian comedy scene? You know, it was it was part of a larger trip for me. So mm. I had uh, first come to Thailand and I was doing shows in Thailand. And right. then I came to um, Malaysia and I <laughs> actually, I, what really happened was the person that booked me for the comedy uh, show in Malaysia just just fucking never contacted me. Like I, <laughs> I, actually, I remember that I yeah. booked it through a friend <laughs> and my friend's like, Oh yeah, this is the guy. And this is the date and whatever. So I was like, great. I get on a flight. I get on a plane. I land, I get off the plane and I'm just like, Oh, let me just, you know, see about what we're, how about the show like tonight or whatever it was. And then this, I was like, doesn't exist. I'm not on the flyer. I'm not. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. What? And I was like, what the fuck? I'm in a country that I would never have have thought of going to, and uh, I have I have I don't even have a place to stay at this point. I was like, "What the hell is just going on?" Mm. And I was like, "I'm at the airport." I literally thought I was like, "I should just leave." It's like, why mm. would I get a cab to go in to? I was like, "I don't even know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing." So mm. I was um, I was pretty upset, and mm. thankfully, mm. luckily, I um, you know. I was able to work at the other Malaysian comedy mm. club in town. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, thank goodness. And that was so, there was so, so, so kind to have let me in because I was this poor stranded comic and I had, I had nothing, I had nowhere to go. And that show ended up being so fun. It was fun because uh, I just come from Thailand. I did shows where 
we were performing for um, expats. And right. so it was just, you know, kind of not not too dissimilar to what I would get in New York City. I'd get a lot of tourists, a lot of uh, Europeans, and, you know, no big deal. But then going to Malaysia and seeing a crowd of local people mm. it was really fun, really wild. And then the f- most fun I think I really truly had was watching the other comics before I went up and mm. watching them you know, to varying degrees, because they've all been, they've all had different um, experience, struggle, and what jokes that they think would be funny, and mm. uh, uh, what local humor kind of sounded like, and then what jokes they'd made about America. Mm. Uh, and I remember, it's actually appropriate now, because of the protests going on, but I remember one comic uh, making the joke about um, about scary movies and how yeah that was me actually that was yeah. you is your joke okay <laughs> yeah. i was like i was gonna say this may have been you buddy <laughs> yeah no because joke. you know why after yeah. that set so uh-huh. it was a joke about conjuring and after that set yeah, i remember yeah. you came up to me and you specifically <laughs> called out that reference <laughs> yes and then you said i didn't know that the reference reached uh, this part of the world and i was like hey us is number one man you're everywhere <laughs> Yes. Oh, man. It's so, I, I was going to stop myself and say, I think this may have been you, but I'm not 100% sure. I just remember the joke. But you, you're, you're, you know, you're a comic. So you probably know that uh, for some reason, comedians, in my experience, uh, they remember jokes better than they remember the, the people who said them. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh. <laughs> and when you see a guy say a joke, you're like, oh, that's you. I, I know you. <laughs> like, we've met. Yeah. We, we did a show seven years ago because I remember that uh, joke you told. So, right. yeah, so the joke you told referenced uh, the Black Lake, right? The lake yep. is, is black. It's so black that american cops uh right so i mean you know that was a bit of the wording so I was you like, know interesting that you brought that up uh-huh. because you know whenever i do that joke mm-hmm. it's always a 50 50 i'll get a laugh and sometimes i'll get a oh and whenever <laughs> wow. i get a oh i'll yeah. need to tell the crowd that hey look I'm not making fun of black people. I'm right. making fun of certain police that are randomly shooting. I mean, the keyword is random to show right. that then they'll be like, oh, I get it. So <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I got to explain certain things because like stand-up is still very new here. And right. uh, a lot of people here, they, they tend to think uh, at the surface. At the, they don't think deep enough to understand the context. Mm. Like they hear the word black and then they hear the word uh, police shooting they straight away assume I'm making fun of the victim. Correct. But in right. actual truth, I'm being sarcastic right. on the police. So, yeah, certain times, the, we, we are still at a very birth stage. You know, if I put where Malaysia is, mm-hmm. it's like maybe where America was, say, like maybe 50, 50 years ago. Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's where, that's because a lot of American comics, they come to Malaysia, Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, and they get shocked that <laughs> we are able to actually do race, racial jokes. Right, right. But on the other hand, you know, when I go overseas, I see comics doing like incest jokes <laughs> and like doing jokes about Jesus, Virgin Mary, Moses, split the bloody thing. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. But uh, racial, they stay away. And it's amazing. At the end of the day, you know, to me in stand-up, there's no restrictions. But it's interesting because different areas will have different sensitivity, right? Oh, yes, and the, the more the more we travel, the more we get to know all this kind of stuff. 
So when when you when you are, when you saw Malaysians performing this kind of jokes, right? Mm-hmm. Were you like culture shocked to look at the content that they're yes delivering on stage? Yeah, yeah, that that was huge. And uh, you know, your joke being you know first among them because, of, like I said, of what it was. Uh, it was so interesting to me to see what uh, what did kind of get across the pond and what people do uh, recognize uh, about. America and Americans in general. So that was that was surprising to me. Um, mm. I would say that the the struggle that you're talking about, that transcends into people who have been doing comedy for a long time as well. I think that the breakdown of why people get upset about your joke, it's just as you said, is like you shouldn't punch down, right? That's sort of the you know, people don't want mm. that the butt of the joke to be mm. the typically oppressed person for sure. Mm. Mm. Um, so when you make a clever joke, you push the edge. That's what edgy is. You know, you push the line, but you don't mm. cross the line, right? And you're mm. saying, well, no, no, no. You have to listen to my joke because if you listen to it, you have to. You should understand that the the butt of the joke is is the person is the cop doing the wrong thing. Mm. But then there's this additional level which is really weird and we're struggling a lot with in america too right now which Mm. is it doesn't matter it's not a laughing matter i don't care what the joke is i don't care who the joke makes fun of you're trivializing the entirety of the situation and that's the point where you're like wow well i don't know what to do now so that's where i think we're getting to and, and maybe perhaps your complaint where it's like unless you are literally preaching uh, virtues and the way to live life correctly, then the audience might not get behind you because you just can't say black and cop shooting and expect to get anything funny out of it, regardless of who yeah. up being the butt of the joke. Yeah. And that's when you're like, oof, that's um, really like, that's not the yeah. rules. Those aren't, that's not what we agreed on. I mean, now like I will kill myself to do that joke now. But <laughs> I think I'd rather just quit comedy and just do TikTok, you know. But <laughs> right. I mean, right. now it's so damn bloody sensitive. I think now it doesn't matter at this point in time, you know. Like, right. It doesn't matter if it's the cops or what. I I just want to talk about it, you know. Like, right, right. But, but you know, know, and what's interesting because I had a conversation with a friend of mine. He was desperately trying to get some Facebook jokes out there that were just kind of like irreverent and silly, but also of the subject matter. And right. basically, with the conclusion we had come to was like, hey, man who do you want to make laugh? You know, who do you, whose day do you want to make better? Because the odds that you're going to actually hurt the very people that you would like to heal or like to make laugh, um, is pretty yeah. high. Like, I don't know if it would upset you, but let's say you told that joke and, uh, black people, um, if they're in your audience, they were just like, they just didn't like it. You know, they didn't make a big mm. stink about it. They didn't heckle you, but they were just like, mm. you know, they just didn't like it. And that consistently mm. happened over and over again. At some yep. point, you got to ask yourself, wait a minute, I purposely wrote the joke to be pro-black and sort of anti-shooty um, racist cops. Yeah. And yep. yet, every time I tell this joke, I don't hit the target audience that I want to hit seemingly and uh so obviously something is amiss that i think is a good time for you to evaluate what it is that you're doing what the joke is that you're doing so i think there is a time when you kind of go okay the joke is sound uh it's punching up it's hitting the right person but i don't know is it just is it worth it 
is it, am I even making mm. the people laugh that I want to make laugh? Because if I tell a joke like that and consistently I get white redneck people to laugh at it and minorities to be like, Ugh, and just feel shitty about it. I'd go, Oh, I guess that's not the, the message that I want. That's not the message mm. I wanted to convey. Uh, yeah. I fucked up. Yeah. It's like, your, it's like a Pakistan joke, I guess. <laughs> yes yes exactly yeah, and and yeah, yeah. and with that feedback you go you know what i think i hit the wrong mark here so to mm. answer your question about about the other so that was your thing then i saw some other i think um there's another comic um, maybe it was you <laughs> but i remember uh another comic making like malaysian racist jokes <laughs> which was really funny to me it was so funny to see because there's just not like black people in Malaysia, as far as I remember. Uh, you know, you've got Chinese, Indian, and and Malay. Malay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so he was like to watching. So someone gets on stage, you know, he's like, so uh, you know, uh, so a, uh, I don't know, a cab driver picks me up, and he's he's half Indian, half Malay, quarter Chinese. So you know that he's a he probably works on a. <laughs> farm or he said like some random thing and i was like what i had no idea what the reference was but the, i remember the person was some mix of some ethnicities and then they just made some broad generalization about that person <laughs> it's like i have no okay, idea yeah. i have no <laughs> idea what your joke is about <laughs> I don't get you. sorry go ahead no now that you have said cab driver i think i know who it is but yeah <laughs> so funny yeah and but I, yeah a lot of uh a lot of american comics or like uh international comics they come to malaysia and they get shocked by the racial jokes but interestingly you know in malaysia religious jokes are more difficult to perform oh i bet than racial jokes makes, and overseas sense. is the other way around yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah we we really sort of pride ourselves on uh kind of comically trashing uh religion in, in various ways for for whatever reason i'm not sure and then and then yeah racially stuff is a little harder to 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 come by that's that's a little bit more more difficult uh not as well trodden territory i was yeah i was told like yeah don't don't do any you know any religious jokes in pakistan i was absolutely told not to do any religious jokes um, yeah they were uh umar was like straight up just like uh, well you know you might get arrested. <laughs> I said, "Oh, Jesus Christ!" <laughs> I said, "All right, I don't, I don't want to do that." Said, I think it's more than that. Arrested is just like maybe stage one. Like <laughs> <laughs> he's he, being humble, bro. He, 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 yeah. Apparently, I was like, he didn't explicitly say that, but I was looking up the laws, and I was like, wait a minute, we can get killed for just <laughs> for saying things about Muhammad. I don't want that to be the case. Yeah. Um, so Even was, like, uh, you know, I had like a friend called uh, Lars Kelly. He's a uh, he's a no, sorry, not Lars Kelly. Uh, Pete Johansson. Pete Johansson is yeah. a Canadian comic. Okay. He performs in the uh, US quite often. So when he came to Malaysia, he said the same thing. Where he was shocked by this uh, that people here they are able to do racial jokes, and he felt that America, no, he felt like this was America like fifty years ago, like during like the Richard Pryor days, right? right. Where they're like talking all this. Uh, because you think about it, the reason why we speak about this racial stuff is because we, 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 we went through this when we were a kid. Like you know, when I was a kid, I kid you not, I had, I had, I had to go through jokes like this. You know, where my friends will pull me in a room, they'll off the lights, and then they'll say, "Hey, Gajan, where are you?" And then they'll on the lights. Oh, you're here. This kind of shit jokes. I'm serious, you know. Like all. So when when a comic go, goes up there and say this kind of jokes, is because he or she 
has gone through a lot of shit. Right. Where now stand-up becomes like a way to diffuse that mm. instead of going the, the aggressive way, like, hey, I'm treating it as jokes. So that's the thing about, like I said, you know, different areas will have different, uh, different demographics and different history. But the thing is, our racism is very casual. It's very surface. Mm. You get what I mean? Like, you know, all the racist things that I've ever gone through, like people uh, like uh, mistaking me for a lorry driver. Uh, they mistaken me for a, what do you call it, construction worker. It's right. because they actually mistaken me and not purposely pin me down. Right. Unlike, unlike you know, I don't want to talk about it, but unlike certain news that you see nowadays where when people pin someone down is because he or she is racially pinning that person down. So it's a different end of the spectrum. Yeah. So ours is on the very casual side. You know, I think the intention of the my friends or like other people is either they got mistaken or either to, to make a joke out of it. But mm. on a surface level, yeah. But on the whole scale, Malaysia is not is not that racist. I would say ours is very surface stuff, very just just right. like pinchy stuff. Yeah. And that's the reason for our racial jokes. Is there any uh, of any, any ethnicity that that systemically um, has been prejudiced against uh, that creates sort of a dynamic that might even mirror what uh, you know black people have gone through in in history of America? Uh, okay, so if you talk about system, well, in in Malaysia, there are differences like in, in races. Uh, for example, like the, the Malays, they have a certain extra rights mm-hmm. and the extra rights can come in the form of education or maybe even like how like like a property. Like they get a 5% discount when they buy a property. Whereas Malays oh, okay. and... Whereas Chinese and Indians uh, won't get those, uh, what do you call that? Uh, privileges. So right. for example, right? Like when I was in Form 5, O-levels, I scored 90s, 1B. And I didn't get a scholarship to Germany, whereas someone else of a different color right. uh, got the scholarship with only like one third of the A's that I got. Wow. So yeah, I guess uh, system-wise, this is this is an example. But if you're talking about, you see, the thing is, the system is set by probably a few people, right? But mm-hmm. uh, if you talk about the people itself, like like people who are non-powerful, right? We have been. To be honest, I'm very happy with Malaysians. We have been uh, very uh, polite people. Uh, you know, nothing nothing crazy has ever happened in this country. I mean, even if there was probably one or two, but not as crazy as what you see in other countries. So yeah, it's sad that a uh, few people in power actually do this to create uh, a big discrepancy between uh, races. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, uh, in America, there's there's a bunch of different things going on racially where even with when it just comes to the history of of africans uh in this country where um the the that that scar of of slavery um is still so prominently there because the laws that were written even after slavery ended um right up until the 1960s before uh the civil rights movement have just it just the 60s just weren't long enough ago so Mm. you have such a deep-rooted systemic racism that goes on in america that black people have a tough time explaining to white people uh who grew up you know in the past 20 30 or 40 years that 
you know, well, my grandfather, you know, wasn't allowed to eat at restaurants or my father couldn't, uh, you know, vote because of these reasons, all these, all these little things. And yep. then there's the kind of racism that's just vitriolic person to person where, uh, I, you're different than me. I hate you. Um, I've been taught to fear you and I will. Okay. And then there's the kind of stuff that you're talking about, which at the end of the day, as you kind of are putting it is uh, a bit harmless uh, or it, it's not meant to be anything or mean anything. Uh, and it's just kind of like a little stumble on the whole learning curve. And it's funny because that stuff exists here too. So I think yeah. uh, uh, people who are, are well-intentioned uh, kind of get really frustrated or they trip over themselves because they will stumble upon something like that. They'll, you know, they'll like talk to a black person and say, Oh, you know, you remind me of, and they'll name some other black person. And yeah. it's this thing of just like, <laughs> ah, you know, yeah. and, and then, but that's been like, that's, you know, bro, that's racist. And then you, you hear that that's a racist thing. And that person's like, what does no racist? They just, I said, you look like Morgan Freeman. You look like Morgan Freeman. I, I don't know what there's to say. And, but, the problem is, is that whereas you um, in Malaysia probably would not be so offended by that because the other stuff isn't attached to it. The the vitriolic racism and the systemic racism isn't attached to it. So that meaningless stuff, um, that thing where you're like, no, I think he legitimately mistook me for <laughs> some cab driver or some or whatever. I think I I literally <laughs> probably reminded him of someone. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah, okay. that wouldn't fly as much because it's, it's, it's just, it's all mixed together and it's all painful. So yeah. they're like, just, just, just stop all of it. And then it causes a weird backlash tension because then, um, you know, certain white people try to victimize themselves and act like, well, it's like, you can't say anything right. It's like, everything's racist these days. And so then that becomes a bit of a rallying cry. Uh, so that's mm. why, that's how, you know, messed up the whole thing winds up getting. Yeah. You know, interesting, just now you said, you know, comedy is also about the time frame. Oh, yeah. Because like now, I mean, now I wouldn't want to do anything about like uh, African-Americans, anything, even though it's punching up or punching down, you know, I oh, yeah. mm-hmm. it gets so sensitive, right? Yeah. Because like, uh, I don't know, have you seen this, uh, this George Floyd challenge where some idiots started pinning down other people? What? And I think was it on TikTok or Whoa, yeah? Oh no! And most and I'm yeah, terrible. I know. And these are like and these are white teens, you know. They are like teenagers, and they started doing this challenge and in that in that similar post, and uh, got a massive backlash. And uh, it's messed up that people are doing this. Like even in Malaysia, there was recently there was a there was a girl. She wanted to sell a, a air purifier, like an air blower for the for the house. Uh-huh. And her tagline was, "I cannot breathe." Oh. God. Yeah, and she, everyone, like all the rest of the Malaysians, like immediately messaged her and like educated her. And she, first, first part, she defended herself. Uh-huh. After that, she said, "You know, I'm very sorry. I wasn't aware of uh, this and that." That's the thing. Like, people got to be aware of their surroundings, you know, and understand what it is. Like, right. I think that it's incredible that um, a Malaysian person would feel. Um, compelled to change what I imagine was an innocuous slogan that 
um, was just connected to this uh, thing, I believe, mm. and feel compelled to change because of some an event that happened in the United States of America. Uh, you know, mm. that that's that's so remarkable to me. And I, I mentioned this to a friend. I said because there were there were protests. Uh, eight countries was the, was the statistic I heard. It may maybe even more now since several days have passed. But it was all 50 states and over eight countries of protests because of this death of George Floyd. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? That's so cool of the rest of the world because I, I mean, I'm like really trying to rack my brain if some somebody died in Malaysia or any other country. I'm like, would, would right. Americans get all riled up and, and take to the fucking streets over something that happened mm. outside of, of this country? I, I just cannot imagine that they would. So it yeah. it it choked me up thinking that that wow, the, not only is the world paying attention when we fuck up, uh, and we do often it seems, but it's it's but the world's paying attention when when we as a people you know are a part of a movement, and I, I think that that's that's very 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 powerful, very interesting, and um, so yeah, it, I guess uh, no, I guess George was like a trigger. Sure. But I guess the the underlying message was basically equality. Yeah, you get what I mean. Like you know, it's mm-hmm. not about colors because like someone like recently ex Miss Malaysia, she's no longer she's no longer she no longer holds that title. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this beauty queen, she she actually shared on her Insta story. Uh, she said to all the black people, "Relax, uh, you chose to be that color. Accept <laughs> it and uh, take it as a challenge." So this is what she said. And apparently she was coming from a spiritual manner. Like she's using words like soul and all that. And I'm like, God damn it. Are you even understanding the time frame? Like wow. really you're asking them to accept what it is. So I like, I bashed her by in a logical way, you know, by saying that, hey, look, you want the peaceful way? They did go through the peaceful way, right? Yeah. George told, say, I cannot breathe. That's the peaceful way. The passers by, you know, they did tell the cops, say, hey, you know what? Check his pulse. The peaceful way and nothing happened right the yeah. victims of the the fa- family victims right did voice out on news nothing happened and now after a riot after a couple of buildings burnt and then they got uh what derek is it his name the the police arrested right. and now with the other police arrested so as much as i don't support violence I will never do anything violent, but do i understand why is it happening in the u.s yes i do because the government never listens yeah yeah um and and there's very few languages that they that they hear and uh the the language of protest they do and mm. the language of riots they do so i've been struggling with this myself a lot of people are obviously they they're trying to thread this needle here where they say right. you know i uh i agree with the protest but i just i just don't agree with the rioting and i go sure okay you know that's that's not a bad position to take <laughs> but yeah, it seems almost infantile to take that approach, to take that position, because you're just like, all mm-hmm. right, well, so what does that mean? Does that mean that when the, when the cops make a curfew at 8 p.m., uh, like they have been over the past several days here in in New York City, um, that you just listen and that's it? Well, what if they make the curfew all day or 2 p.m.? You know, like what is what is the limit? When do you start to be um, as Martin Luther King had been and as Gandhi had been civilly, civilly disobedient, where you have to be disobedient. You have to, you know, rattle the cage a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't think that the other side's fighting fair by any means. I mean, you see videos coming out on a daily basis of cops uh, in this setting, in the setting of, hey, we are protesting police brutality. And then they go ahead and they be police who are acting brutally. And I'm like, there is yeah. a video. Do you see the senior citizen? I, yeah, I was actually going to mention that video. And uh, Oh, my goodness. You know, it's so funny. There's, there's such funny racial overtones uh, of that, too, because you can see younger people and you could see black people get beat up. But in America, if you see some, some grandpa-looking dude, you know, get shoved and he's white, it's, it's so wild to me how many people saw that and were just like, this is crazy. And I'm like, yes, it is. I'm not saying that it's not. But maybe, maybe now you kind of see why when black people saw George Floyd get choked out and murdered that it affected them so much more than it affected you. And, uh, and that's so, and I'm, I'm even going to go ahead as far as to say that that's okay, that it's kind of okay to understand that our brains are feeble and they sort of work like that, that when Mm. you see something happening to someone that looks like you, that you just care more. When you look at a bug, you want to crush it because it looks like a fucking alien. It's disgusting. It's a bug. <laughs> and you're just like, ugh. But mm. when you look at a koala bear, you're like, aw. When you look at a, a monkey or a chimpanzee, you're like, that's like me. I have two arms and whatever. And you just learn to, <laughs> <laughs> you learn to love the thing because you see you in it. And unfortunately, that extends to race too. So it's like you can show the images and you can say the name. But there's a certain percentage of the population that just doesn't have the empathy skills yeah. to 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 feel and hurt the way other people hurt. So it takes yeah. a video like this old man getting shoved for a certain percentage yeah. of the population to be like, oh, God, you know, they've crossed a line. <laughs> and it's, it's almost like, yeah. OK, you know, it's, but if you're Machiavellian, you're almost like, whatever, yeah. as long as you're as long as you're pissed <laughs> the way the way you should be, then great. Yeah. Uh, but I saw it. Yeah, I, I admit it, it struck me, too. I was like, God, you yeah. guys are fucking ruthless. It's terrible. Yeah. You see, like uh, recently as well, I I have this video called What's Going On La where I actually talk about the latest news and I spoke about this Black Lives Matter. like, And the reason why I think in like, the thing I like about stand-up, right? Where, like I said just now, right? You get to control your whole content. You don't have to go through a director or let's yeah. say a senior writer. Mm-hmm. And it's because when we speak out things, we it's a way of us expressing our thoughts, right? Because right. I'll give you an example. Like one of the common things that I always get from clients is like they'll say things like, oh, for our corporate dinner, you, you can't make fun of this, can't make fun of that, this, right. that, that. Right. And then after that, there was once I did a, a, what do you call it, an event and the client starts off, it's a, it's a whitening, it's a skin whitener, right? And she starts off the event by saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, are we ready to be white? <laughs> and <laughs> now, you see, now you're an American, so obviously you got it, but the thing is, the the reference white here is not as strong, you know, because we're all Malaysians over here. So no one bets an eye, no one listens carefully. And yeah, she just continues the event. And I'm like, but you just went through with me a list of things that I cannot say about right. religion, sex, race, and everything. And then she goes up there, and, are we ready to be white? Are we ready to get extra privileges? <laughs> and it's, I, I don't get it. Like, I'll give you another example, right? That I had a friend who's a lawyer. 
Mm-hmm. And during his meeting, his manager used the N-word. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but here's the thing. You see, you're an American, but in Malaysia, people, they don't know the reference and now they are being educated through this Black Lives Matter. Okay. And I can't believe things like that, like, you know, just, just go past. And here's the thing though, because it's not a joke, so people don't really care. Mm. But if it's a joke, people say, oh, you cannot make fun of that. That was very offensive. Oh, like- but when people don't make jokes, they can get away with so much of things, which is ironic because it should be the other way around, right? In what context, I, in what context did this person use the N-word? Were they, how, how did they, were they referring to a black person? Were they being flippant? What was the way in which it was used? I have no idea. He, so it was, it was a, basically a law firm. Okay. And I think he was probably talking about probably some law about foreigners or probably along those lines. I can't remember. My friend told me this like many years ago. Okay. Like he just told me during one of those drinking sessions and I was like, I was like really shocked. But at the same time, I wasn't surprised because I do know Malaysians who, who use the N word out of it and sometimes use the C word, the Asian C word. Oh, okay. Uh, because see, these words are very strong in America. Yeah. Uh, but not so strong this side of the world. Whereas uh, in Malaysia, we have got our own strong words as well. Right. Uh, uh, like for example, like we there's a strong K word for Indians, uh, okay. and uh, it's called killing. It's okay. something like the N word. Uh, yeah, it's equivalent to the N word actually. So it's very offensive here. So different words will have different power here, but I think it's good for everyone to know globally. You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is sad that uh, people you know are still being racist, like because they are not. I don't know. To me, I think they get away with it, especially if they are not, uh, they are not performing or they are not telling a joke, which is weird. Right. Because like uh, when you're on stage, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I watch a comedy show as an audience, I want the stand-up comedian to say whatever he or she wants. I just want the full. I don't want any restrictions. I want to get the best out of it. Right. But when you're not in a comedy show, I don't know. Like some sometimes people don't think. Right. It's interesting you said that too because. To me, um, a lot of the best art comes from the rules, a little bit of an interplay between what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Um, mm. and, and I agree with you. I want the comic to be able to say whatever they want. However, if there was no restriction uh, and the comic could literally say whatever they wanted, then I think that you'd start to lose some of the comedy because mm. you know it's fun to dance around the rules and it's fun to bend the rules but it's actually just less fun when there's none at all and then it's just 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 anarchy and i use um mm. i use a uh, renaissance art as an example where you know some of the mm. best artists in the world were all commissioned by the catholic church so they were told to paint very specific paintings and they were given a lot of specifications on what was going to go in them and what couldn't be included in them and so mm. you have these geniuses, these brilliant artists who are who are commissioned to paint Jesus over and over and over again. Um, mm. The Last Supper or La Pieta or the Sistine Chapel, just referring to Michelangelo, I think, alone. And here is Michelangelo going ahead and putting in all of these, um, these sort of uh, symbology and these other references and these the ways in order for him to sort of burst out and be original, but in the confines of what he was paid to do. And I find, mm. I find that interplay to be what 
real art winds up being. Because if you look at like the uh, the band, right, the band that makes the album, and you got to make it for that people will like it. And then you got to work with the studio. And then sometimes the studio has their own demands. And sometimes it comes out like shit, but sometimes it comes out like brilliant art because there's a lot of people saying yes, a lot of people saying no, and you're getting a lot of feedback. But then at one point, the band just, you know, they become so big, they're allowed to do whatever they want. And usually the band loses it at that point, right? They could just say, they, you know, they could come up with any song. No one's going to tell them no. And then mm, they mm, kind of mm. lose a little bit of that luster. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that happens with directors, writers, uh, stand-up comedians. Like they get big enough where nobody is kind of uh, restricting them anymore. And then it becomes self-indulgent and weird. So mm. oddly, I think that when, when things become more stringent, and, uh, you know, you look at comedy in the 50s and you'll see like them make a reference and the crowd goes crazy. Again, it speaks to the ephemeral nature of comedy, right? Because mm. you don't realize that they were actually breaking a little rule and they were, they were, you know, they got away with a small little something. And the audience appreciated it because they know what they were kind of getting away with. But we don't because we're like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. Like, I don't even understand the rule that you were technically bending or breaking there. Um, mm. so that's why, that's what edginess is. You want to be on the edge of what is right and wrong. And that's constantly mm -hmm. changing. And I think that's how we actually started this conversation. So <laughs> that's a nice, a nice little roundabout way to come back to that original point that comedy's ever, ever changing. And, uh, you know, if you were to, if we were to look back at whatever jokes that we've been coming up with today, 20 years from now. I think the hope would be that we don't get it as much, that the humor is sort of staled a bit. Because uh, the only humor that seems to stand the test of time is like slapstick, uh, Molary Curly type stuff, where it's just like, yeah, I get it. He fell down. I, I understand. <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> he got slapped in the face. So you're like, right, that's the play. <laughs> uh, that's, not, that's not commenting on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Rob, uh, we are now like uh, 80 minutes, uh, so we're going to wrap it up. Uh, okay, Rob, uh, on every episode, uh, I will actually have a segment called Just Answer Lah. So uh, basically, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions and you right. just got to pick one. There's no right or wrong. It's just either A or B. All right? Oh, okay, so perfect. Let's, uh, let's go on. Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon? Uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel. George Lucas or James Cameron? James Cameron. Ooh, uh, you're now going to be the <laughs> opening act for Dave Chappelle or Bill Burr? Oh, Bill Burr. <laughs> <laughs> same, same here, bro. Uh, yeah. Ford Mustang or Chevy Camaro? Mustang. Seth Rogen or Jack Black? Uh, Jack Black. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> if you were paid 100,000 USD uh -huh. to perform stand-up in Wuhan for one month, <laughs> would you accept yes or no? <laughs> Yes, I would. I would take a hundred thousand. <laughs> okay. Wear a mask. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is something that America doesn't have at the moment. So, <laughs> uh, okay. If you were to migrate, uh, which one would you pick? Malaysia or Singapore? Uh, I, I missed the first half of the question. I'm sorry. Say it again. If you had to migrate, uh, would you pick Malaysia or Singapore? Ooh. Um, uh, damn it. It's, uh, honestly, Singapore, I think. I don't know why. It's just in my mind. I don't, no, it's okay. It's I, the I, currency. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I want to earn three times more, Gajan. Like. 
was like, oh, no, I don't want to offend them. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Like, it's a podcast, bro. So say whatever you want to say. Okay, last question. Uh, perform your one-hour special in Nigeria or Egypt? Oh, in uh, Egypt, just because I don't think I know much about Nigeria. <laughs> and there you have it. That's the end of our <laughs> podcast. Thanks a lot, Rob. Ooh. Hey, thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, this is probably, this is the longest podcast. And uh, yeah, you are my first international guest. And uh, very interesting uh, stuff that we said that uh, I just had to follow the flow and actually go off script. So a lot oh, of things great. were just off script. Oh. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah, man, I, I, I'm I'm loquacious. I I. I I talk a lot. <laughs> so I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, no, that's great. I actually love your your point of views and uh, the points that you give and uh, hope all is going well in New York. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I hope all is yeah. well with, with you as well. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Rob. And uh, for those of you who are listening, if you want to follow Rob, uh, you can follow him at uh, Rob Ryan Rocks on Instagram. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, thanks a lot, Rob. And see you next time. Thank you. Take care.